Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, so Renee, episode two of this season, we've got somebody incredible, Francis Tiafo, big foe on the come up, back from an injury, already storming the gates, playing some pretty good tennis uh, and poised for more. But before we get into your chat with him, I feel like we should kind of do like a little bit of a state of the union sunshine double check-in. You know, Miami is not quite over, but we've already seen between Miami and Indian Wells just... Like, I feel like we're looking at the future of tennis. It's so exciting. Totally agree with you. Um, I was thinking last night because uh, I did watch the Alcaraz um, 7-6 and a third against um, Kachmanovic. And I tell you what, man, the first thing I thought after the match was we just witnessed the future of men's tennis. Because for me, Alcaraz has everything that you need to be a world number one to be a multiple Grand Slam winner. I mean, obviously, look, Novak's still there, Rafa's still there, but at some point, those guys are not going to be there. I think Novak will be around for a lot more, a lot longer. Um, so he'll certainly be still knocking on the board, door of winning Grand Slams. But Alcaraz is just this great. He just fights. He lost the first set yesterday, and I thought, oh yeah, big deal. He's going to come back, and I actually had to do. Um, something after his match last night. So when he lost the first set, I was like, no, because I knew that it was gonna, he was going to come back. So, you know, he has a locker room reputation now and he's starting to get one of being a true fighter, being somebody who really wants this. And it's exciting. He's so exciting for men's tennis. And yeah, there was a, this, you. you know, we, we felt there for a while. Who's next on the men's tour? Because, you know, Zverev, I mean, you know how we feel about him. Um, I mean, it's a pass. He's, he's still there, but he's not really having the results that we you know, thought maybe, but he obviously will see how he does on the clay. But Alcaraz, this kid, this kid's come to play and he's come to take over the men's tour. And I love it. I'm here for it. And I'm, what I like about Alcaraz so much is that he seems to combine a lot of incredible components of what People And I don't talk about the big three very much because I'm just sort of over it generally um, as a concept, especially on the men's side when we've had all these great, you know, versatile women to talk about for the last couple of years. But he really does combine like the forward movement of Federer. Like he's really trying to close the net, close points, finish aggressive. He's got obviously the tenacity of, of a Novak or, 
or, you know, in the heart of a, of a Nadal. Like he doesn't fade away. He fights to the very last point. He's got this sort of Gumby um, limbed uh, Djokovic-esque <laughs> ability to hang in points and make you beat him with four or five, six winners. So he really kind of has this, and I, nobody, uh, you know, includes Nick Kyrgios in the big three, but He's got this incredible, dazzling shot-making ability that somebody like Nick Kyrgios, or, or frankly, a Francis Tiafo, who we've been looking at as somebody who's got a real, you know, presence on the big stage. He's got that too, and so for me, he kind of has it all. Like, not to get too excited about any one player, because I'm really am excited about this crop. Like, obviously, watching Taylor Fritz, which we did over a backgammon set at a club in Miami last week, um, you know, win Indian Wells, and then watching Carlos make this deep run. Titsipas, as you said, he's, I think his time to shine is on clay, but like this to me, to kind of announce the cohort of a new generation, you really do need like consistent results at the top. And I feel like Alcaraz has the ability to do, to do that and to make it be a sustainable thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, let's not forget that he is so young. So we know that tennis is now becoming a very much an older sport. Um, you are peaking at 30 plus these days. So there's a tremendous amount of time to still hone so many skills. And like you said, I love that he tries to come in. He, I mean, the guy, I mean, have you seen a faster kid around the court? It's a joke. So yeah, oh. he does combine all, all the great things, the great heart and sort of tenacity. And he loves getting the crowd into it, similar to like Rafa at times. And he has that flexibility like Novak. So yeah, we don't want to harp on one. Um, what a great um, effort from Taylor Fritz to, 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 when in his basically in his backyard, I mean, he grew up in Southern California. So to see him win that tournament would have been a dream come true for him and his family. And so, yeah, a, a really, and a nice kid, you know, he's uh, sort of gone up through some ups and downs over the last few years and a lot of expectation on his shoulders. So to see him win that tournament is great. Let's see how he can translate that into Grand Slam, um, you know, mojo now. And, and, and can he go deep in a, in a slam? Because that, yeah, that's does really Taylor, weird. Does he have the same tool bag that, somebody like Carlos uh, Alcaraz has, where it's it's not just going to be an occasional great run of two weeks. You know, Taylor Fritz, it's hard to know with his game because he played so well during that two-week period in Indian Wells. But then again, I don't know just because we haven't seen him at the highest, highest stages of the game on a consistent basis if it's if it's a situation where he just kind of needed to acclimate to play his best tennis or if it's more like, oh, he doesn't quite have all the tools, but occasionally, you know, things can kind of break his way and he can have a great result. Um, I think he's improved so much of his weaknesses. You know, he's improved his speed around the court. Um, he's also always had a massive serve. He had he had some issues, he said, even told me um, after he won that incredible round of 16, I believe, at the Australian Open this year about his forehand, how, you know, when he's being aggressive and he's, and he's confident with his forehand, then he knows that he can beat anyone. So, you know, he's, his backhand is fantastic. The guy can come into the net. So, yeah, I mean, he has all the tools. Now it's so much of this Caitlin from from you know being number one in the world to number 100 in the world so much of it is also mental and so I think winning that tournament will will help him believe that he can win the biggest of tournaments um so as I said we'll see if it translates you know going deeper in grand slams he had that got to the quarters I believe at the Australian Open so that they're starting to come down it was a hump to get over that get out of the round of 16 um so yeah, we'll, we'll see if he can continue to, to rise. But it's great for American tennis. It's great for American tennis to have a yeah contender who can go deep. The other thing I sort of want to mention, just because sometimes when we get um, into these conversations about the pros, it's like leaping, you know, heaping on one superlative after another. And 
somebody who plays recreational tennis is probably like, yeah, of course they're all like, you know, genetic freaks with access to the best training and, you know, practicing eight hours a day. How does this affect me? But I have to look at Taylor Fritz, who um, at one point in the last year and a half was in the hospital with his leg immobilized, coming back, having a period of deep, deep reflection that can only happen when you're in a hospital bed, not able to move. Um, and then coming back very, very quickly to the game and, and seeming to come back to it with a new mindset. It's, it's like sometimes when you have that moment to sort of say, how much do I really want this? What do I actually want to put on the line um, that I actually think is very relatable? Whereas, you know, I'm never going to be a tennis player like Taylor Fritz, but I can relate to the idea of how am I spending my time? How am I using my mentality? How am I bringing myself to this moment to meet it. And I find that there's a lot of real inspiration to take out of what, you know, Taylor's Taylor's journey and the fact that he, you know, went from being in a hospital bed to, to lifting a trophy months later is crazy. You know, that's, that's such a cool, cool arc. I think so many tennis players, you know, they get, have a major injury, come back and are are better for it in a lot of ways. I mean, someone I want to throw out here is, um, you know, Daria Gavilova, who's now Daria Saville, who got married, um, to Luke Saville, who um, plays tennis as well. He's an Aussie uh, doubles, doubles specialist. Um, what a tremendous two weeks for Dasha. I mean, incredible. Talk about resiliency. Yeah. My God, Caitlin, you have no idea what this kid has gone through over the last, I mean, 10 years. I mean, she's had, she had, first of all, she had to recover from a massive knee um uh you know acl tear back in the day she came back from that she came back and played great she got into the top 40 in the world um and then she's i mean the amount of injuries that this kid has sustained and then had a tremendously bad achilles issue two years ago rehabbed it rehabbed it rehabbed it bang did the same thing reheard it rehabbed again for basically another seven months i mean she lost two years of her career again with this injury and basically comes back in the last couple of months and has just, again, like gotten herself. I don't know what her ranking will be after this tournament, but what an awesome couple of weeks for her. In, I think they were saying she's in, in the, the top 100. Like, she went from being oh, 305 into the top 100, and it seems like possibly even higher than that, like 200 spots in I, a week and a half. Like, that's crazy. What a cool, yeah, cool that's turn I mean. of events. So you've got to have, and someone like Dasha just loves, loves to compete. She talk about loving crowds and competing and having a good time on the court. She's a pain in the ass to play against because she is such a little pain in the ass on the court with her like antics. And, but, but, but that wins her so many matches because players get so annoyed against her because of her competitiveness. But I know Dasha off the court and she is the best human being to be around she is so much fun and when she gets on the court she just competes hard um so well, this actually so this is a good segue because one of the things i want to note nobody is going to accuse daria seville of nearly murdering an umpire or a ball boy for all of her antics she's mostly positive and getting pumped up and refusing to go away she's not you know screaming at her crowd her her box and and being she used a baby. To. She used to. Yes. I remember. I remember when she came out of the tour, but it seems like it's sort of fueled by positive energy and a refusal to sort of back down. I, we are having a crisis in the world of tennis right now with the behavior of the men. There's a New York times article today by Matt Futterman out about how there's just this epidemic of insane racket abuse that is leading to uh, uh, a lot of calls for Um, some of these guys to be heavily, heavily penalized. And I think we have to talk about it. 
I don't even know what to say. A, a complete arsery. These guys, they're losing their mind. Uh, listen, <laughs> pot, coal and kettle, <laughs> right? I, everybody knows that watch me play. I was a little, would get a little upset from time to time at the umpire or linesman or lineswomen or whatever it was. Uh, but I wasn't a big racket thrower. Um, and so that sort of always bothers me. I, I'd throw it flat like Andy Ruddick demonstrated on his uh, tutorial of how to throw a racket, um, which I thought was kind of hilarious. But Which for anyone listening honest, should go and look up, but the gist of it is you grab it by the throat and you throw it straight down so it's landing on its face. I don't believe in racket throwing at all. I had a coach who just got on me, and so I never, yeah. ever do it. But if you're going to do it, do not ever throw it or attempt to hit any person whose job it is to be on the court facilitating your match i'm talking about umpires i'm talking about lines people i'm talking about ball kids and the fact that jensen brooksby actually did hit he hit a person which to me should have been automatic deep the way that novak totally. was an automatic deep the fact that zverev got a suspended eight-week sentence after nearly taking the legs off of an umpire in mexico the fact that nick curios actually did hit somebody after uh, it took an unfortunate bounce as he said enough enough's enough absolutely no tolerance for this behavior whatsoever uh, I mean, listen, Nick, yes. I mean, look, we know, look, I, I think that Brooksby, Brooksby didn't, I don't know. I've looked at that video so many times and, and I think that I, he was just kind of trying to scrape the ground, but then he lost the racket out of his hand and, you know, but the bottom line is it's the same as Novak. And I said this on Twitter uh, last week. I said, Novak didn't mean to hit the lines, uh, the, the, the lines lady at all he I, I think he actually tried to hit the um hit a ball sort of close to his player's box because that, that's exactly where they were sitting and he's been known to do that in the past and i don't think he just anticipated her walking accident okay no problem it doesn't matter it doesn't matter in tennis if it, yeah, what the matters intention is not you, the point the intention exactly. is irrelevant the outcome is what we look at and if it hits a person who's on staff and on the court in any capacity the rule is very clear, automatic deep. And, and to be clear, Novak had spent several years throwing, hitting balls, coming close, and was constantly asked by media, like, hey, you almost hit somebody. Hey, you threw a racket and it nearly took out somebody. And he would laugh and say, like, yeah, but it didn't. And same and as Nick. Same as of Nick. Of course, Nick did that actually, the other day. it does hit somebody. Well, Nick, Nick, um, you know, also got annoyed at press asking him about that racket throw. In, um, and he said, did it hit? You know, he was really rude to the um, to the reporter. And, you know, some people are like, well, did, he's a reporter. That's his job is to ask those questions. And the easiest way to answer that is, yeah, man, I, I fucked up. I made a mistake. Yeah. I clearly didn't mean to hit anywhere near that kid. I, it was regrettable, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, Nick, Nick takes that switch and he just goes from zero to 100 in like three seconds. And we saw it in Miami where he just completely lost his shit. Um, to the umpire, Carlos, and, and he was fined really heavily. I think the fine against him was really high. I don't think it should have been that high, to be honest. Um, and I feel like the one thing about Nick is I feel like he, of all people, is the one that really gets – he he gets a lot of higher – he gets – his fines are higher, in my opinion, than a lot of people. Um, but also at the same time, it's this problem of accumulative shit, you know, yeah. and at some point – can't keep trashing umpires you can't keep saying this stuff you can't throw your racket after after a match like man i've seen so many players carolina plishkova took every racket out of her bag in dubai a couple of years ago and smashed every single one of them after losing a match but it was away from everybody nobody saw it like you, 
throw a racket and break a racket immediately after a match on the court is just so friggin childish. So, I mean, what Nick did the other day in, in Indian Wells where he almost hit the ball kid and then this in Miami, it's like, dude, my God, you have played such great tennis over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Can you just control the urges of anger like that? And it's such a shame because he is so electric to be around and watch on the tennis court. And um, he's but playing he good does... tennis and he's seeming to care and again, think... which is so good for the sport. Everybody agrees that having a healthy engaged Nick Kyrgios is good for the sport. And I do have to say, and this is, we're having this conversation a week after there was a major violent issue at the Oscars with Will Smith failing to control himself and smacking Chris Rock across the face deserved or not. You know, I, I feel like I have to tell my eight-year-old like no hitting, there's just no hitting. That's it. No, no hitting. I don't care anything else. And to me watching these men just control yourselves. This is your job. The same way that your job would be to, uh, you know, show up prepared and, and take your lumps. You know, I get it. it. There's a lot on the line. It's your ego. It's fans. You're emotional. You're, you're accessing a competitive space. Um, at the end of the day, I, I want very much for the tour to just have an absolutely no, no tolerance policy. And there's going to be some, you know, some ramifications for that. And then it, the culture will change. Cause right now there's absolutely no real sense. Occasionally there's fines obviously, but there's no real sense that this has any, uh, you know, this has any impact. It's getting worse. And so to me, it's like, no, just nip yeah. it in the bud. Absolutely not. Well, I said after the Jensen Brooksby thing, I said, you cannot, you cannot learn if you're not taught. And mm-hmm. I just felt like that was an, a teaching moment for him because he does some random shit on the court too. He does like get a little bit petulant uh, as well. And I said, the only way to nip it in the bud is literally stop it by finding these guys immediately and defaulting them and like suspending them. Like the fact that Zverev wasn't in my opinion, suspended for like a month from the tour is beyond me for oh, what he did. For me, it, was- it would have been six months. I mean, get that guy, obviously, especially in the context of him being uh, um, under active investigation for domestic violence. Um, just, you know, there's a credible amount of body of evidence that this guy needs to be taught some, some lessons. And I think there's no better way to handle that than the governing bodies of the sport deciding what and what isn't acceptable. And so actually, ironically, his outburst in Mexico, where he nearly took the feet off of that umpire, um, ended up sort of retroactively restarting the domestic violence investigation against him because everyone was like, is this guy already under scrutiny? And the truth is he hadn't really been. Um, so it's sort of like, Hey man, you know, you read hey, so like, maybe we should look into that domestic violence thing. Maybe after there's all, some like weird was... anger issues this person has that they're bringing onto the tennis court, you know? That was some cray, cray, cray behavior from somebody who's like num- like top three, four or five in the world in singles and losing his fucking mind over a line call in Mexico in doubles. And I mean, listen, nobody liked to win doubles and no one acted like an ass sometimes on the court in doubles than me. But that was absolutely the, it was shocking when I watched that. Like I have seen a lot of shitty things on a tennis court done by players. That's got to be up there with probably the worst I've ever seen. And that's a big statement because I've seen some really cray cray stuff. It's been around a minute. I just, I want to spend time talking about tennis playing. I want to spend time talking about the sport. I don't want to talk about how these well compensated athletes can't keep their emotions in check enough not to behave like children. Like this reminds me of like juniors, but worse because nobody yeah. seems to have any repercussions. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and it's like, get and they it can, together. 
And they pay these uh, fines like it's nobody's business because it's like seven bucks to them, 70,000. But, but, you know, just back on the Will Smith thing and, you know, obviously uh, him winning best actor for playing (laughs) Richard, my favorite line, I think you and I talked about it was Amy Schumer saying, oh, isn't it great that we made a a movie about Uh, another film where we get to celebrate two incredible women's death. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was just great. I mean, but, you know, he was phenomenal in that, but it just, it does uh, remind disagree. me. I like, thought he was pretty bad in that. I thought he was miscast and he uh, kind of brought okay, the whole well, movie I, down. I, I thought he was pretty good. But anyway, yeah. that's that's neither here nor there. What is appropriate in this situation is that when I wrote about that situation on Twitter, of course, a lot of the reaction from my fans, obviously, and people out there in tennis world, well, he, well uh, something about, what is he acting like? He's on the ATP tour. So, oh, I mean, that's the reputation <laughs> that's now so terrible. of the ATP yeah. tour is that, well, Will Smith's going to get away with this because look at the W, look at the ATP tour and what they're getting away with. So, yeah. you get the bad reputation, ATP tour and ATP tour players, when you're getting lumped in with like, what's the big deal? It was, it was just like Zverev or like Nick Kyrgios or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, took away from that. Um, night for the Williams sisters and stuff I thought that was really tragic um yeah it was a terrible turn of events. you know what? if you're gonna slap Chris Rock do it in the va- at the Vanity Fair party when no one's watching and everyone's hammered okay that's my that would be my plan even though I agree with you hitting is not the option for anybody to do uh just there's just no hitting bonk- you that know was- what take your lumps get up there and give a, an incredible speech about how you know what playing this role in this incredible you know, complex figure gave you the opportunity to understand about the world and yourself. That's the way to handle it. I mean, Jesus, don't, you know, you're assaulting somebody at their place of work. Like get, what is this? The ATP tour. However, <laughs> there you go. Bum, news, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Um, one thing that I do want to touch on uh, before we get into your great, great chat with Francis is um, we have a new women's number one player in the world. And Regardless, we would have had a new woman's number one player in the world because Ash Barty, as we discussed last week on the debut pod with Arantxa, uh, has retired. But I think points-wise, Iga's winning Indian Wells and now into the finals in Miami to play Naomi Osaka in what is going to be a gangbusters match. Uh, oh we would God. have had a new number one anyway. I think she has had to have won Miami to take that spot from Ash, I believe. Um, so if she does win Miami and we are, um, you know, days away from that happening, win or lose, um, if she wins, she would have taken over that spot regardless of Ash pulling her name off of the, the list. Um, so it, it, look, but either way, Eager will be number one in the world, um, come on Monday. And I think she's going to be a great world number one. I, I have to say, I think she has all the tools. I think the one player that really gave her fits and problems was Ash Barty, <laughs> because I don't think she was a fan of Ash's slice. I think she really, really struggled with that shot. Um, but everybody else, I mean, this kid, when she's at her very best, she can beat anybody. She plays huge game. I think Thomas Witkarowski, her new coach, has really added sort of that little bit of a nuance of understanding how to play at the top um, echelon. Um, her former coach, Piotra, was a great guy, and he he's, he – Boy, I, I'm sure he's a little bit like, oh, what a bummer, you know, that I'm not a part of this still because he, he really was very influential over her and he's a great guy. He's now coaching uh, Shelby Rogers. But Thomas, I think, has just added that little extra, you know, understanding of what it takes to be really, really good on a consistent basis. Of course, former coach of Agnieszka Radwanska. So it must have been really great for him to now coach somebody who did get to number one in the world because Ag- Aga was so close for so long. 
Um, so yeah, I just think she's a fantastic kid. She works hard. She wants this really badly. Um, you know, she travels with Daria, her sports psychologist. And I think that really does make a big difference for her just being able to handle these moments. So I'm, I could not be happier to see, um, a really, really good kid who loves this sport and who's going to be a great number one. Um, and you know, a part of me hopes she does win Miami. So it, it, it's even a better story. But the flip side is great to see Naomi in a final because, you know, we've obviously seen the trials and tribulations of her life. I mean, she's ranked like 70 or something in the world. What the fuck? Like, really? She won't be after this week. But it's just yeah. nice to see Naomi in a, another big final. And I would love to see these two. I don't know who's going to win this match. I hope it's going to be the, the match of the tournament. Yeah. But having said that, it's just these two could be one and two in the world and going back and forth for a long time. If they stay healthy and they stay clearly happy, um, yeah. then hopefully that'll be a great rivalry. Yeah, I think um, I couldn't, I couldn't, I have not much to add to that other than I'm excited that Iga is our number one. She feels very deserving. She's won on a number of different surfaces and has a complete game in a way that's a very nice foil for some of the bigger hitters like the Sabalankas or the Bedosas or the Osakas in a way that it's always really nice to have a mix of styles and her approach yeah, is very, me. very heady and it's very thoughtful and she's a big reader. She's an interesting person. I think she's a complete person, yeah. unlike a lot of people who only hit balls and then, you know, retire to their, their, uh, you know, hotel and don't talk to, you know, don't engage with culture. So I'm, I'm really excited because I think Iga is a very deserving number one and, um, yeah, it'll be a great match. Uh, I hope it's already great in the sense that it's a two, you know, headliner type players yeah. who are, who are, I think as to your point, going to, going to be a big part of the future of tennis as long as they stay healthy and happy. So, all right, well, we should get to Francis. What an incredible personality he is. What a great additive, uh, joyous thing it is to have him back healthy and competing well. He had a pretty good tournament, um, both in Miami and at Indian Wells. Um, and I think it's only going to get better from here because he's still finding his footing after, after being off with that elbow injury. So yeah, any, um, any thoughts about Francis and where you see him fitting into the, the future of tennis? Cause to me, it's very bright. Well, I just love this. Talk about loving. Could not love somebody more than I do Francis Tiafo. He is, and he is our friend Liz Cully's favorite tennis player of all time. Um, but he just, he's just this constant light of love. Like he's a, he's just a joy to be around. He's constantly smiling. He's constantly happy. I'm sure he has very dark days from time to time, like every other person in the world, but he never shows it. He is constantly just talking to everyone and being really up and happy. And I think he's got some big things in the future coming up. Um, some of which you and I know, but um, he just, he's just, I think he's really, this is, this is a year. And I think Taylor winning Indian Wells is going to sort of catapult him to thinking maybe I can do that as well because he knows he's, he, he can play at Taylor's level. Um, and just one little uh, thing that I wanted to make sure I got into this episode was that he, he, I interviewed him, along with uh, the, when I did a Rancho Sanchez Vicario at this Miami Mind event um, for mental health. And they did a terrific job at Fisher Island. And on when I was leaving that um, event and I was talking to Rachel, who organized this event, she, I said, isn't Francis great or something like that. We started talking about Francis as I was leaving and she said it. And you know what? We paid him X amount of dollars for this event. And he gave every single one of that back to us. And, oh, you know, a so lot cool. of players 
get paid to go and do some, you know, charity work. And that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but, you know, having the pros come and, you know, celebrities come gets a lot of people to come. So the people that come paid a lot of money to play with those players. So that's why they pay them. So they make sure they're there. So they get more money. I mean, it's, it's part of the business, right? And some, some charities you play for free and some you get paid. Francis got paid to be there and he gave it all back to um, Miami mine. And I just, that to me showed so much about him as a as a human being that it's it's more about the bigger picture for Francis Tiafo and it was a pleasure to interview him and he's just as I said he's just one of my favorite people in the world and he's certainly one of my favorite on the tour and yeah. I love the kid all right let's hear from you and Francis uh until soon Renee thank you hey thank you Caitlin see you all soon Let's get this going. Okay. Hi, Francis. Welcome to, it's now the Renee Stubbs Tennis Podcast, uh, brought to you by Racket Magazine. But uh, Francis, okay, so I want to get into a few things. Uh, I know you're down here playing Miami, the tournament. You're actually out at an event right now for charity. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I was approached by it, um, the Miami Mind uh, Mental Health Fund. and, And I, you know, I've had, you know, people in my family, struggle with mental health and so I definitely wanted to be a part of it I knew I was going to have time I knew I wasn't going to be so busy so um yeah and also I've never been here to Fisher Island so it's, it's also quite nice yeah we're in uh, on Fisher Island right now where there's grass courts hard courts clay courts I mean it's unbelievable no wonder Caroline Wozniacki has a court named after her here so Francis uh, everybody sort of knows how you got into tennis it was really because your dad was the janitor at the tennis courts in DC I want to know what made you sort of want to go out in those courts? Because so, sometimes, you know, kids, when they're around their parents or their work or something, they don't really want to get involved with it. But what made you want to get out on the tennis court? Yeah, obviously, you know, you know, growing up, you know, growing up, uh, I mean, especially at those times, you know, pretty poor. And my dad knew that us being there, me and my twin brother there, was just being us in a better environment after school and stuff like that. And um, so when it came to actually playing, I generally just liked it. It was cool. I, f- I found I was playing with other kids and getting to know other kids, creating friendships and stuff like that. That's kind of how I, f- I kind of fell in love with it. Is that important? Because I've talked about that, like why kids get into tennis. Often they get into basketball or soccer or baseball because they want to be around their friends. Would you advise that, like for anyone talking to want to get their kids into tennis, especially if they're – you're a very social person, so – is that important at a young age to be around other kids? I mean, I think for me it was vital how my personality ended up being because I'm very, uh, I'm very social. I like to be around a lot of people. But I think being around your friends, especially at a young age, it's all about having fun. You played a game because it was fun, right? And then, you know, I fell in love with it because it was fun. Obviously, as you get older, you know, business starts kicking in and things start getting much more serious. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's why I love the game and that's why I continue to play the game. So... You have, I mean, I've been around tennis a long time, and you sort of have a very unusual style of playing, particularly on the forehand. So 
I had a bit of a laugh this morning with uh, Caitlin from Racket Magazine. I said, do you think that, you know, because he's such a, what are you, Gen Z? Uh, you think he was like getting on YouTube and thought, I'm going to, what does a tennis player looked at? And you think he discovered like Ernest Gulbis's forehand is the one to like emulate? <laughs> like the technique, where did it come from? I'll be honest with you. I used to have a normal forehand. And then I, I'll never forget, I, I was playing this, this tournament, Les Petitas in France. And I came and I came back and then all of a sudden I was like I was it's funny because I was I was joking around and making fun of dudes forehands on the tour like I'd always go and do that I'd see guys on the tour hit and so I was like copying a bunch of guys and coach was like you need to stop doing that because then your strokes get messed up I was like nah come on man and then all of a sudden like I can't I can't hit a forehand and like so like I can't listen you know tennis is so mental you get in your head and then so I'm trying a bunch of things I'm just messing around I'm hitting balls on the wall for like hours hours and just kind of like like just have like because I'm all a field player so I guess like how it feels and then I was joking around swinging like that and it felt nice and here we are oh my god that's a classic so uh whatever works I guess I mean because that's really it so the great thing about tennis is that you can have such different strokes and still be such a good player and it's about finding what works for you I guess absolutely I've been told to change it many times you need to go to traditional way didn't feel right and everyone's different I mean that's just how life is everyone's totally different and um, you know I found what definitely works for me so you had a, a difficult sort of end of the year injury why don't you give us a little background on what happened and also sort of you know the toughness of the last few years with the pandemic and and, and where you're at now yeah I mean it was crazy because uh, I was dealing with an elbow problem right after since right after US Open now, you're not going to blame that on the forehand are you <laughs> no 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 uh, yeah so yeah, and then I was kind of dealing with that, masking it. I was taking, you know, taking a bunch of bunch of pills and things like that to kind of get me through the year. I was playing great tennis at the end of the year, but yeah, then it, the, it only started getting worse and worse. In the off season, tried to take care of it, couldn't couldn't really happen. Went to Australia, wasn't prepared, so I took a long time off. And any Wells, my first tournament back, so it was it's good. I mean, I feel in a good place. I feel fit. I'm healthy now, so that's good. But I mean, how I feel overall, last couple of years was tough. I mean, it, the pandemic was really tough on me. Um, because, you know, playing with no, coming back and playing with no fans was tough. Also, you know, seeing where the world was at at the particular time, it's, everything was so unsure. It was, it, was, it was pretty tough, and I had a ton of family, um, you know, passed because of COVID. So it was rough. You know, I, w- I wasn't in a good place at all. But, you know, then, then I think, you know, last year at Wimbledon, when, you know, fans started coming back, they were starting to have a little more, a little more normality. Helped me out a lot and just kind of, like, figure out why I love the game, why I play the game. And, yeah, so I'm, I'm in a better place now. You have been working now with Wayne Ferreira for a couple of years. Um, or is it about a year and a half, approximately? What, Wayne's a very different person to you in a lot of ways. I mean, when he played, he was very quiet. He wasn't demonstrative. He sort of didn't really engage the crowd all that much. So, i.e., completely different to you. What is, like, some of the things and influences that he's had over you over the last little bit? I think I think it's the discipline part, right? I mean, I feel like I'm, yeah, I'm very much so flamboyant. I can do a lot of things on the court. I'm, you know, gifted and whatever. But between the years, how I approach the game, um, it's kind of just you tightening up the screws around, you know, certain areas. You know, just being more professional on and off court, making certain sacrifices, those kind of things. Because I mean, the stage we're all at, we're all pros here. It's not like, yo, man, you need to do a little here, or you know, your foot needs to be here. It's not like. You know, maybe those are, are some small things, but the bigger things is just kind of my discipline. And if you see, as of lately, I've, I'm staying more with the matches for much longer. I feel like I'm much more present. 
I don't feel like my the ebbs and flows are as dramatic as they were, which he's helped me a lot. And that's just been like just doing things that he don't want to do. You know, I, I was allowing him to let me to to get me in uncomfortable situations and being comfortable in those uncomfortable situations. So I think because he's so different, it's good for me. I think if I had someone like me, it'd probably be not the best thing. Um, but it's funny because he also likes me to be me. He doesn't want me because, I mean, I've been told that, you know, Francis, you should be doing X, Y, and Z and this, that, and the other. You know, we thought you were the major break right now, which is obviously always tough to hear. People can say that they don't, that doesn't bother them, but it's always tough to a certain degree. This episode is supported by BNP Paribas and their commitment to the future of tennis with a focus on social equity, sustainability and community responsibility. Listen in to a conversation that I had with BNP Paribas USA CEO Jean-Yves Fillon and stay tuned for that episode later in this season. I think the future of tennis, probably the future of anybody, it's how do we give back? Like giving back in a real way, giving back, you have to believe in it, otherwise your giving back is not really sustainable, it's only a one-off in time. And I think this bank has managed, and there is so much more we can do, to leverage tennis, including to leverage this tournament, trying to really go beyond the tennis itself and really focus on committing to the communities, equity, the social dimension, equal access, you, uh, as but well also, as it's really important to allow you still be happy because you play best when you're happy, when you when you are actually showing this great attitude to the fans and involving the, the crowd. Is there a time where he's like, okay, this is the time to do it, but maybe not now? Like, has he ever said to you, okay, that probably wasn't the best time to be like that? Does it, has he changed anything at all with that? Yeah, he's like within reason, right? So it's like... He's like, pick your moments. It's like, there's definitely some moments of separation. For example, like, you know, um, if you just if you just get a big break, but it's not a break where you go, then go to sit down. Like, if it, if it's you break. So, for example, I played Andre last year at the U.S. Open. I break in the fourth set to go four-two up. I go huge pump, get the crowd into it. I get bro- broken back at love. So maybe if you if it's too all, and you, okay, you get the crowd into it. You have a minute to come, minute and a half, whatever, calm down. You get back. So just those kind of things. But, yeah, he likes, you know, if I hit a good shot, you know, you clapping hands around the fans and, and stuff like that. It gets, it gets me sort of amped because um, that's, he, he found that that's why, you know, I end up playing my best and that's why that's just who I am. The joy that you show on the court, and I love it because, I mean, I was not, not like that, but I was also pretty demonstrative as well and I sort of would get the crowd sometimes into it. But I, I want to know, I mean, your parents come from Sierra Leone. I mean, we, anybody who has a any kind of education or ability to read will know sort of the trials and tribulations that that country has had over the last 20 years. One of the reasons why your parents are probably in the United States. Um, does, does that have a bearing on you as a human being as well and seeing the joy in what you do, which is, I mean, tennis is tough. We all know it. Travel a lot, work you put in. But in the end, it's not like the most difficult taxing job, right? So is that something that you think about where your parents came from and the, the the will to work hard yeah i think i think people people don't really understand like obviously you know my mom being a nurse working two jobs working late she'd work overnight shifts i'm, I'm staying at the tennis center my dad being a janitor is the only way we can play the game for free 
I mean, because that wasn't an option. I'm probably not playing the game. Well, I'm definitely not playing the game of tennis. So, you know, now, you know, I'm, I was able to, at a young age, buy my mom a house. My dad's good here in Florida. So people don't understand, like, when I'm out there competing and I'm getting the crowd into it and I'm getting so pumped up, they're like, oh, and they see me around, like, all laughing jolly. It's kind of like, to a certain degree, I feel like I, I succeeded in a lot of ways. You know, like, I used uh, tennis was, for me, like, once I got to a certain age, I was like, I don't want to go to college. I want to have tennis. I love the game. I want to play at all the slams. and But I want to be able to financially take care of my family because they they grinded for 20, 20, 30 plus years. Just for me and my brother to have an opportunity. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, like, perspective is just performance, and I think perspective is everything. People don't understand, like, you know, I've, I've succeeded in a lot of ways. My parents can sleep well at night knowing that I've I've grinded, and I still haven't got to where I want to be, but the base of the essence of what I was doing is is has been completed, yeah. Mm. Okay, well, now that you said that, where do you want to be? What is the goal, man? Come on, I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I I think I'm very capable, man. I think I can be in the top ten. I think I can win grand slams. You know, I don't – you know, I'm I'm a definitely a, a big-time player. I like – I mean, I've had a lot of great wins against top five big big opponent, opponents in the world, but it's just about discipline. How – how what am I willing to give to the game? What am I willing to, to sacrifice to do it? And I think – I'm definitely there now. I've matured now. I've been on tour for seven years, eight years now, and I'm re- I'm ready to do so. I'm, that that doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. Um, still what does it What does it say to you when you see uh, Dominic team and sort of some of the other, look, let's say they're not the big three winning uh, some events now at Medvedev, and you compete with these guys. Does it give you the impotence to think why not? Why not me? For sure, like you know, I beat Stefanos at Wimbledon, beat him twice last year. Beat Rublev, like you know, I mean, beat a lot of these guys, and it's like, and it's funny because I grew up with these guys. We played juniors with these guys, I've known these guys forever. See Fritz just win yesterday, yeah. so you kind of look at it and you're like, you look yourself in the mirror, you're like, well, why, why isn't that you, right? Like you know, so, but at the same time, it's kind of like, you know, I'm not, I'm not envious of anyone. I'm always, I'm the first person. Yo, congrats and. Um, you know, I feel like your path is your own path. You know, it's the worst thing you can do is compare yourself to other people. But for the, and the same token, I'm just like, well, if they're doing it, I, why not? And and so I'm definitely on that why not path right now, and I'm ready to put the head down and, and, and try to do some good things. I think the better I do, it's only good for the game. Now, speaking of the Williams sisters, what about playing mixed doubles with both, with, uh, with both of those two through the years, and uh, particularly Venus um, at Wimbledon? It looked like you're a bit of a fish out of water playing mixed doubles, but how fun was that? It's, it's hard playing mixed, like, cause like I'm I'm playing and I'm like, you know, like, well, obviously, like it's not like you're playing with a friend. Like, I'm playing with someone I really look up to. So, a, I'm nervous as shit. Like every ball I miss, I'm like, she probably thinks I suck. Um, so, but yeah, she, yeah, she probably did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like I was like I was, I was pretty nervous, but then I mean, um, yeah, and our and our first and our first match, then we got a good rhythm. Our second match, we got killed, and I'm like, this is the most embarrassing thing. I, t- I was texting, I was like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Uh, she's like, no, nah, that's all good. And then playing with Serena Hopman Cup, playing against Roger, I mean, I was, I feel like I've had experiences in my career that you know gets priceless, like a, like a million slams on one court, like two absolute legends, like me and Belinda, are like, bro, why were we even on this court? Like, this is insane. But. Just being able to build relationships with them and knowing them and actually call, being able to call them friends is, is crazy. And um, I'm truly blessed for that. What is for you, for someone who is quite social, I mean, I see you 
you are the most social human being on tour. I mean, you smiling everybody. You, you, as you said, you, you're not a jealous person. You totally love when people do well, especially Americans. But what's the toughest thing on tour for you? I mean, to be honest with you, as, as, as nice as I am, I just feel like it's tough just knowing how many genuine people there are. Like, I mean, because it's cutthroat out here. I mean, playing for keeps, bro. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, you know what I'm saying? So as much as I'm not the jealousy type, you, I feel like you know there's a decent amount of people are and people like just looking for themselves, which is totally fine. I'm not, you know, coming at them in any way, but it's just the name of the game. But, you know, but I feel like not not falling into that and still being you. Like, you know, just because, you know, other people feel a certain way or act a certain way, you still can be you and be true to you because – being a good person and being a good dude carries a lot of value as an individual, not just an athlete. Um, a little bit about Rackets Down. Uh, you won the Arthur Ashe Humanitarian Award a couple of uh, Was it last year? Yeah. Uh, from the ATP. What did that mean to you and, and, and that entire period uh, of your life and what you came up with there with your girlfriend? You played tennis at UCLA. What, what was the impotence behind that and who, who came up with that inspirational idea? Well, I mean, she was just like, look, man, like, the world's going crazy right now. What are you going to do? She really said, like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And cause you have the platform because I'd do it without your ass. But <laughs> you got the platform. And I said, I mean, I don't know. Like, she said, look, like, so she said it one day. She said it two days. She said, look, everyone's coming out. This is the perfect time to do it. Brand's going to get behind you. Like, you got to do something. So I was like, okay, how do we do something with getting a bunch of people involved with them not saying anything? Because people are... People are worried about, you know, they say something, someone may get upset or whatever, blah, blah. And so, you know, what happened with Michael Brown in 2014 where he's told to, you know, lift his hands up and still got shot and killed anyway. So we were like, okay, like, why don't we just do that? And then I called a bunch of people. I was nervous calling, like, Serena and, you know, soccer because, you know, everyone's asking them to do stuff. Not not like that kind of stuff, but just stuff on, on the irregular basis every day. So I was like, eh. We'll see. And even, like, Gael and Joe, like, I was like, that is tough. But it was cool to see, like, you, like how many people got behind it and how many people wanted to do it. Like, you had some OGs. You had Chanda. You had Zena Garrison. Like, that was cool. Like, Mal Washington, that was the first time I ever spoke to him, um, which was cool. Like, you know, just obviously asking him to do the video, but just, like, getting close to the OGs that were playing tennis. Uh, James Blake, obviously a good friend of mine. But it was it was cool. And then to see how what it turned out to be, you know, it's – it was unbelievable, and to be able to win that award from Arthur, and you know, it was great. And um, I was truly blessed. Um, thanks for doing this. I know you're super busy today, and um, you know, Miami's just around the corner. Uh, I want to know, like, just from your standpoint, what what the goal is for the rest of the year, and also what you really think um, and truly believe in your heart that you can do as a tennis player. Yeah. No, I mean. Yeah, I mean for the rest. I mean for the rest of the year. I mean these. I mean obviously first couple of tournaments, you just trying to get your, your feet back back into it. But um, I mean again, I mean I want to. I want to. I want to try and like you know top twenty, top fifteen finish. Why not top ten if you're there? That's like kind of been the goal with you know Wayne and I. We spoke about building. And how much? How much? Just to interrupt you, how much did Taylor winning that tournament yesterday? I mean, how much does that help someone like you really believe even more in your own ability to win a tournament like that? For sure, it definitely helps. You know, a guy that we grew up with, man, and we battled so many times and played, and and for sure, for sure, that definitely helps. I mean, I've thought about that kind of mindset for for a little bit of time now. Like, I mean, even seeing Cam Norrie win it last year was kind of crazy. Like, you're like, well, like, it's not like a 
you know, 250s of Master Series that's wild, and you know, the bunch of different faces. But Taylor, especially him being American, is like is, is definitely is definitely wild to see. You know, Riley making final of Toronto last year. So I mean, guys are doing it. So it's just a matter of time. But yeah, I mean, I just you know, I really I really think um, I can do some great things this year. I mean, I would love to have a top 15, top 10 finish. I mean, that's that's, that's kind of the goal me and Wayne had going deep in some slams. Um, you know, I made some quarters and some round 16s, but like you know, really pushing the envelope, semis, finals, especially. I'm really looking forward to Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. Those are like, well, outside of Australia, well, unfortunately I was hurt, but like Wimbledon, Australia, and then uh, the Open are my favorite three. Paris, we haven't had the best relationship. But, um, but those three, I mean, with my game, playing on grass, like I like to come to the net. Guys don't really come in much anymore and pass well. But then at the Open at night, it's crazy. Like Stacy, Stacy's great, but always put me at the Open at night. So I'm, I'm excited, and, and, I, and I just I, I want to do some great things and um, – We'll see. We'll surely see. Okay, last couple of questions real quick. Who's your favorite all-time player? Um, Who's your favorite all-time player that you're not still playing against? Um, I mean, Agassi was crazy. Agassi was unbelievable. Because like, for me, that's what it's about. Like, it's not about, yeah, obviously he was an unbelievable player, but, like, you know, like, people just, like, like worshiping the, like, the ground this guy walks. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like he was... You know, with the long hair, with the jeans short. I mean, the guy was a legend, man. The long hair, the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the, but seeing the different phases, like, drop down, came back up. But the story, like, you know, like, people are going to get behind that, I think. You know what I'm saying? And, um, yeah. So, I, I, I definitely loved him. Loved Yannick Noah. Thought he was crazy. Um, and then on the women's side, obviously, um, I mean, obviously, sir, the Williams sisters are, are pretty, pretty legendary, so. Those are probably my favorite. But my favorite player of all time is actually Del Pocho, to be honest with you. I made a big... Uh, yeah, that one hurt me a lot. Like, he was the first person to ever sign my ball and stuff like that. So, he and that's actually my favorite player. All right. So, Francis, thanks for joining me. I knew yeah. this wouldn't be difficult with you. Yeah, no, so, yeah, uh, and also to everyone out there, whoever signs your tennis ball first as a kid, that becomes your favorite <laughs> yeah, player. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Automatically. Automatically. All right, Francis. Good luck this year, huh? Thank you, and thank thanks you. for joining me. No, I appreciate it. Okay. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakre.